Welcome to the Further Light Podcast, brought to you and presented by Wisconsin Freemasonry, helping you accomplish your Masonic goals through education and more light. And now, I introduce to you, Brother Chris Ludke. This is Brother Chris Lidke, and today I want to explore Masonry Under the Reich, Part 6. Now, this will be the last of this series, and it's been a long series, but it's a big topic. And there are times where I may have dug into things a little bit deeper than maybe I needed to, but I want to give as much of a complete story as I can. I'd rather give too much rather than too little. And today we're dealing with the forget-me-not. We've all heard the story of the forget-me-not, that great symbol of Masonic resistance to the Reich. But how true is it? And does truth really matter given the trauma of the war, something that we've already talked about in terms of the war experience and what happened in Germany during the war for Freemasons and how they dealt with it after? What is the story of the forget-me-not? Not just the story itself, but what is the history? How did we get there? My goal here is to examine the birth of the legend, its history and purpose, while remembering the time and place of its birth. Sometimes, truth serves a deeper purpose, even when it isn't true. For today's material, today's episode, I'm looking at Elaine Bernheim, the blue forget-me-not, another side of the story. I'm looking at the Bennett dissertation, which I've been dealing with throughout the past five episodes. I'm looking at a piece of education from MillersvilleLodge.org on the Forget-Me-Not, and I'm looking at the story of the Forget-Me-Not from the Grand Lodge of Iowa website. So without further ado, let's get into part six of Masonry Under the Reich, the Forget-Me-Not. So what is... The forget-me-not. Well, the name, or at least the technical name, means mouse ears after the shape of its five petals. These little blue flowers are perennials, springing up year after year. They grow widely in Europe, Asia, America, even as far as New Zealand. And in many languages, however, this flower is known by its much more common name, the forget-me-not. They symbolize true love, enduring memory, and faithfulness. And we see stories of the forget-me-not throughout many societies. At the start of its flowering season, flashes of blue display dazzling proof to the world that though it may have appeared dead through the long, cold winter, it was only dormant, and come spring, it bursts to life, its color begging the world not to overlook it. So why pick the forget-me-not? Now that we know what it is. The forget-me-not has always been a symbol of remembrance. In Canada, for example, it is worn every July 1st to remember those who died in World War I. It has also symbolized true love and steadfastness. Its perennial cycle has also been used to symbolize long-awaited return. Henry IV used the forget-me-not as his symbol during his exile in 1398 and returned, retained it after his return to the throne. 
Those symbols of remembrance, dormancy, and rebirth became closely tied to masonry in Germany during World War II for obvious reasons. Because the craft became dormant and then returned as we've seen. And so something that symbolizes that is going to be particularly powerful to them. So let's deal with the legend. And here I'm taking this legend. There are multiple versions of it. But I'm taking the version from the Grand Lodge of Iowa website, which has a great write-up on it. I'm going to paraphrase a little. Shortly after Adolf Hitler came to power in 1933, he issued two decrees. The first provided for Nazi control over the educational process. The second made membership in Masonic fraternities a crime. A little bit of a simplification. There's a lot that goes into that, but still, it works. Hitler viewed Freemasonry as part of the Jewish conspiracy and wanted to eradicate it. At this time, there were over 85,000 Masons in good standing in Germany. Adolf Eichmann, who would later play an important role in Hitler's final solution, raided the Grand Lodges of Germany and confiscated their records, including the names and addresses of 80,000 German Masons. Lodge property was confiscated and Eichmann secretly issued orders that Masons should be put to death. His orders were followed. And again, I'm just reading down the story here. The remaining 5,000 German Masons, who, whose records had not been found, immediately went underground, hiding their records, lodge paraphernalia, and identifying jewelry. Active Freemasonry in Germany ceased to exist. In 1934, members of the German Grand Lodge of the Sun, one of the pre-war Grand Lodges, one of the Prussian Lodges, in began wearing, excuse me, began wearing the blue forget-me-not instead of the traditional square and compass on their lapels as mark of identity for Masons. This was a Masonic secret that we are told was never broken. Throughout the entire era of Nazi domination, little forget, little blue forget-me-nots appeared on the lapels in cities, even in concentration camps, worn by brothers whose love of freedom, learning, and Freemasonry remained strong even under repressive Nazi rule. Now, we are also told in other versions that it was worn on the back of the lapel and felt for to prove membership. In 1947, when the Grand Lodge of the Sun was reopened, a pin in the shape of the forget-me-not was adapted, adopted excuse me, as an emblem of that first annual convention by those who had survived the bitter darkness of the Nazi era and were now able to openly rekindle the light of Freemasonry. In 1948, the first convent of the United Grand Lodges of Germany also adopted the pin as an official Masonic emblem, honoring those brothers who had been forced to shelter in the light of Freemasonry within, who had been forced to shelter the light of Freemasonry within, but dared to wear the little flower openly. The tradition of using the blue forget-me-not as a tribute to those whose fidelity to the fraternity set them apart was also used by the Masonic Brotherhood of the Blue Forget-Me-Not that recognizes the contribution of Masonic educators. So, that's our legend. And I could go through point by point and cover issues that are there that aren't entirely accurate based on what we found. But I'm not going to do that. I want to take this apart and focus not on its inaccuracies, but on its purpose. So let's look at the history of this legend, where it comes from. Now, after the war, 
There are delegations that are sent by the Masonic Service Organization, sorry, Masonic Service Association, to Europe in the aftermath of the war. Their job is to report on the status of Freemasonry on the continent. Two delegations were sent to Germany, one in 45 and one in 49. The delegations were organized and led by Ray Denslow, past grandmaster of Masons in Missouri, the second delegation was led by George Edward Bushnell, Grand Lieutenant Commander of the Supreme Council for the Northern Masonic Jurisdiction, and Martin Dietz, past Grand Master of Masons in New Jersey. This delegation received the most information regarding Masonic persecution in the country. The majority of this information came from Theodore Vogel, a name that we came across before. He's going to be responsible for a lot of those ideas about burying the past. It would only be revealed later that the information gained by this delegation was a clever fabrication by Vogel. At least, it appears that much of this misinformation regarding Nazi persecution of Freemasons and Masonic collaboration with the Nazis between 33 and 45, even if it did not originate with Vogel, was propagated by him at the time. Now I'm moving on to read from Bernheim. The report to the Masonic Service Association, signed by Denslow and Dietz, proves that American delegates received biased and incomplete information. It did not mention once the symbolic Grand Lodge of Germany or the Supreme Council for Germany, both founded in 1930, and the only German Masonic bodies which openly resisted Hitler. Nor did it mention the declaration of Prussian Grand Lodges who open, openly supported Hitler in 33 and 34. It depicts an imaginary German Freemasonry, too weak to resist the Nazis and forcibly dissolved in 1933. That information, which reflected the agreement to forget the past, mostly originated from Theodore Vogel. Under the leadership of Theodore Vogel, the Grand Lodge of ancient free and accepted Masons in Germany was originally founded in 1949. Had the American delegates been fully informed of the attitude of most German Masons in the 1930s, their report would have been very different. Just as we see now, you're seeing how muddy the situation actually was. Vogel is also the most likely instigator of the popular forget-me-not myth within Masonic circles. The story recounts how Freemasons, beginning with the Grand Lodge of the Sun, Vogel's original Grand Lodge, knowing that their eradication was imminent, adopted a lapel pin in the style of a small blue forget-me-not flower to replace the common square and compass worn at the time. The story continues that under the most awful persecutions and tortures, and even within the concentration camps themselves, this blue forget-me-not pin served as a token of recognition between Freemasons gone underground. Many lodges in the years after the war were named after this popular flower. Masonic stories and honorary bodies were constructed for Masonic writers, scholars, and authors all organized around this myth. In reality, it is quite unrealistic to believe that Freemasons would have worn a badge as a secret means of recognition during the time in which wearing a mark or badge which did not originate in the Nazi party would have been a criminal offense. It is much less likely that this pin was worn in concentration camps. After all, all of the victim's possessions are generally going to be uh, confiscated, especially for political 
prisoners, which would have been the heading under which Freemasons would have been held in the camps. The reality is probably best explained by the German historian and Freemason, Ernst G. Geppert. Geppert claims that the myth emerged from serendipitous events, which occurred both prior to and after the Nazi takeover of Germany. His explanation is as follows, and we have four points here. First, the Grand Lodge of the Sun used to let a pin be made for its yearly meeting, and it gave one to each delegate. Those made for the meeting held in Bremen in 1926 represented a forget-me-not and were manufactured in Selb. In 1934, the Nazis invented the Winter's Fund, an annual charity drive developed by the Nazis in which badges or pins would be sold to raise money. Different badges or pins were chosen every winter, and they were worn only during the time of a collection to identify those who had contributed. 3. By an extraordinary coincidence, the badge used by the Nazis for the March 1938 Winter's Fund happened to be the very forget-me-not pin chosen by the Freemasons in 1926, made by the same factory. No doubt Freemasons who attended the Bremen meeting of 1926 were glad to wear it again. However, it is out of the question that such a pin could have been worn after the March 1938 collection. The Nazis simply wouldn't have allowed it. You don't wear the pin after the collection has taken place. 4. When Grandmaster Vogel installed a new lodge at Selb in 1948, he remembered the story of the pin. Since the factory and the mold still existed, he let a large quantity be made anew and distributed when he made official visits abroad. And so what Geppert is laying out is the idea that the pin starts in 1926 at the equivalent of an annual communication is picked up in 1934, same mold, same form, same factory by the Nazis for their winter's fund. The Masons would have recognized it, but they couldn't wear it much after Sorry, the Nazis used it in 1938. They developed the Winter's Fund in 1934. So Nazis put the pin out in 1938. And then in 1948, 10 years later, after the war, Grandmaster Vogel, remembering the pins, because he was a member of the Grand Lodge of the Sun, he would have been at Bremen in 1926, seeks them out, finds the factory that still has the mold, and has them made anew. Bernheim also re- relates that Geppert himself was accompanying Vogel abroad at some point, uh, and at some point heard him tell the mythical story to various Masonic delegations. This story demonstrates that very early on, many in the Masonic fraternity in Germany attempted to create a legend, quote, likely born as a result of an unconscious effort to inhibit the past as well as a conscious maneuver It was believed not only because it was the logical thing to do, but also because it was reassuring. It reassured people and the imagination of Freemasons acting accordingly to their ideals. So rather than succumbing to opportunism, it becomes a story that shows brotherhood, brotherly love, a willingness to fight under any circumstances. And so we see then more than likely the forget-me-not is not used at the time. Also, let me point out, while in the camps, obviously it's going to be a real problem, in public, 
It would have taken a single one of those V-men, a single one of those informers, former Masons, who had been upset at the Lodge and turned on them, to let the Nazis know to look for this, and they would have caught on. It just doesn't make sense. They would have worked. So why create this myth in the first place? Well, nobody comes out and says, I have just invented a tradition. Information about the Masonic tradition surrounding the blue forget-me-not amounts to very little. It is true that the flower was used by some German Masons in 1926. It appears likely that in March of 1938, some of them did wear it again as a Nazi badge, even though, by an extraordinary coincidence, it had been chosen as a Masonic emblem 12 years earlier. It is likely not true that it was ever worn after 38 as a secret means of recognition, because, again, the Nazis didn't allow people to wear the pins from these old fundraisers. You don't walk around with a lapel covered in them. However, even if many German Masons, together with a great majority of German citizens of that time, never objected to the Nazi politics and went so far as to support Hitler, some were brave enough to fight him openly. Muffelman, the Symbolic Lodge, based on membership of all the then-existing German lodges, we see a number from Bernheim of around 1-2%. to We've seen numbers around 5%. It could be a little bit more. But it's still the vast minority of Masons for reasons that we've talked about. Out of 174 lodges which participated in the creation of the first United Grand Lodge of Germany, only five belonged to the symbolic Grand Lodge of 1930, the only German Grand Lodge which openly resisted Hitler. For human and political reasons as well, those Masons who thought it their duty to rebuild German Freemasonry once the war was over could hardly tell the whole truth to their foreign brethren. The foreign brethren, they're actively trying to denazify them, frequently by imprisonment, beatings, etc. Bad things happen in those camps. Yes, I know, they're allies, and I'm supposed to say good things about them, and for the most part, 90% of them act properly. But they're always those groups. Many believe that they may have told the story of those dark years in a different way. But you must be ready to admit that it's probably easier to say so today than it was in the 1950s. It's so much easier for us to look back at this very difficult period now, from 2022, than it would have been in 1947, or 1953, or 1958. Because it's too close. The people that you would be talking to went through it. And the last thing you want to do is bring up the trauma. Think about other traumas you go through. If you're in a car accident, people don't all come up to you and say, hey, tell me about exactly what happened in the car accident. No, we don't do that. We give our condolences. We say we're sorry you went through that. We offer assistance. But we intentionally don't put you through that trauma again, if we can avoid it. And so they're going to do the same thing here. And so it's only with time passing that I can even go back and look at these issues. So accordingly, a legend is born. Not the legend of the forget-me-not, but that of a German Freemasonry, too weak to resist, 
banned as soon as Hitler became Chancellor of the Reich, wearing a badge on the streets and, of all things, in the concentration camps. That legend was likely born as a result of an unconscious effort to inhibit the past, as well as a conscious maneuver to play with the memory, to make it look a little bit better. It was believed not only because it was the logical thing to do, but also because it was reassuring to imagine Freemasons acting according to their ideals, fighting for freedom and defending it. Let's keep it at that, and let us admit to the Masonic Brotherhood of the Blue Forget-Me-Not, and thus did a simple flower blossom come forth and become a symbol of the fraternity, and become perhaps the most widely worn emblem among Freemasons in Germany. In the years since adoption, its significance worldwide has been attested to by tens of thousands of brethren who proudly display it. And the question is, if we know the myth isn't true, does that mean that the symbol is somehow wrong? And I would argue that it's not. Because it's not about the history of the symbol. It's not about whether or not this is true or possible. It's about the story. It's creating an allegory. We should be very familiar with this. An allegory of brotherly love. An allegory of unity. Regardless, today, the forget-me-not is an interchangeable symbol with Freemasonry. Some use it to remember those Masons who were victimized by the Nazi regime. Some use it to remember the legend of those who wore it in secret, refusing to allow the light of masonry to go out even in the darkest days of war. In modern Freemasonry is now commonly worn to remember those who have died as a symbol that while they may be gone, they are not forgotten. Worldwide, tens of thousands of brethren display it with meaningful pride. The history of the Forget-Me-Not is laden with legend and symbolism, and quibbling over historical accuracy merely clouds the true intent of the story. We don't argue over other elements, other allegories that exist within the craft, and whether they're real or not, and why do we argue with this one? It's one thing to understand it, which is what I'm trying to do here, but to understand it also means we must understand the purpose, which is a larger one. Legends like these are not told to teach us historical fact. They are meant to teach us enduring truth, or even truths, plural. And the truths of the forget-me-not are these. We must never forget our duty to the poor and the distressed. We must never forget to persevere through troubled times, as light and life will always spring anew. We must never forget those who have come before us, the sacrifices they made, and the love that they shared with us. We must never forget our duty to honor their memory and continue their legacy of brotherly love, relief, and truth. And at the end of the day, whether real or legend, the blue forget-me-not does serve to demonstrate our unity the need for recognition, and the ideals of brotherly love. It's not meant to represent a history, it's meant to represent an ideal. What we should be. 
And with that, I finish masonry under the right. At the end of the day, this is a little longer form than I would have usually taken. And the history got away from me. Sometimes you start with something simple. In this case, the blue forget-me-not. That leads you down a rabbit hole. Thank you for coming with me down this deep, dark, and often muddy historical rabbit hole. Are you interested in learning more about Freemasonry in Wisconsin? Visit wisconsinmasons.org. That's wimasons.org. Learn more about Freemasonry and access more educational content and further light. Any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at education at wimasons.org. Once again, that email address is education at wisconsinmasons.org. Thank you for listening. 